This is the English Heritage Podcast. Thank you for downloading or streaming this latest podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can, of course, listen to the English Heritage Podcast whenever you like. All you need to do is subscribe via your chosen platform or search through the back catalogue. And don't forget, there are new episodes every Thursday. This week, we're shining a light on the lives of LGBTQ plus people from the past and the places associated with them that you can visit today. We'll focus on four figures whose stories will be presented by Head of Learning and Interpretation, Dr. Dominique Bouchard. Hi, Charles. And Interpretation Manager, Nick Collinson. Hello. Hello to you both. Thanks for coming on. Well, let's start with the basics. So what are Pride and Pride Month? Who wants to start? Shall I kick off very quickly and then maybe Nick, you might want to follow up. So Pride is really about visibility, dignity and equality for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and queer people. So LGBTQ plus. And Pride Month in June is for sharing and celebrating the spirit of Pride. Do you have a further interpretation of it, Nick? So Pride, talking about it sort of historically, it dates back to the Stonewall riots, which happened in Manhattan and New York in 1969. It was at a gay pub called the Stonewall Inn and they were raided by police and uh, broke out into days of riots against police persecution. And this still sort of started a ripple effect across the world for gay and lesbian rights. The first Pride March was held in New York City the following year in 1970 to commemorate the riots, which had happened a year before. And then the first UK Pride March happened in 1972, so just over 50 years ago. And yeah, I think the purpose of celebrating the month now is to recognise the impact that lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and queer individuals have had on history, both locally, nationally and internationally. And that leads us into our next question. So you've talked about impact there. Why is it important to talk about LGBTQ plus histories in relation to English heritage sites? Because obviously what you've described there is a 20th century incident, isn't it? It is indeed, yeah. But, you know, 50 years ago, it's history now, isn't it? Um, Yeah, I suppose. And in in terms of English heritage sites, I mean, it's our job to bring these sites to life. Obviously, each site has endless stories, which it just simply isn't possible to tell every single story associated with the site, especially at the site itself, given the limited sort of space that we have. And um, we have a duty to make sure that we're telling accurate history. And if we left out LGBTQ plus people, we wouldn't be doing our job correctly, really. What we now call LGBTQ plus people have been around since the very beginning of time, really. They're just as much a part of history as anyone else. And historically, these narratives have been deliberately ignored. They've been sort of pushed under the carpet and hushed up. LGBTQ plus people have been ridiculed. They've been the victims of hate due to legal implications, which we'll talk about later, and resulting moral and social acceptance within society. Or more recently, they've just been sort of shied away from being spoken about because people have sort of felt quite uncomfortable talking about it. So yeah, that's why I think it's important to tell these stories in relation to English heritage sites. There are lots of stories there. It's part of the human experience fundamentally, isn't it? I think. Indeed, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Lord Beecham is our first character from LGBTQ plus history who we're going to talk about. It's spelled, for anyone who wants to look it up on the internet, uh, B-E-A-U 
C-H-A-M-P. So Beauchamp, if if anyone's speaking yeah. French out there. So which property is Lord Beecham connected to? Whereabouts is it in England? So, yes, Lord Beecham, or if you're saying it as it's spelt, Beauchamp or whatever, Beauchamp, is connected to Woolmer Castle, which is in the town of Woolmer on the Kent coast, southeast England. It's about 10 miles north of Dover and a couple of miles south of Deal. That castle was originally built in the 1500s by Henry VIII in response to threats of invasion from Europe when he broke from the Roman Catholic Church. But since the 1700s, Woolmer Castle has been the official residence of what's called the Lord Warden of the Cinque Ports. And I'll explain a little bit about what that title is, but it's a title that Lord Beecham held from 1913 to 1932. Quite a powerful position, I believe, but later became ceremonial more. Yeah, basically the title of Lord Warden of the Cinque Ports goes back to the Middle Ages before there was a standing navy. Um, the Cinque Ports, it's actually lots of spellings here, it's going on the C-I-N-Q-U-E, like the French for five, but pronounced mm-hmm. in English as Cinque. The Cinque Ports were originally five towns on the coast that were given special privileges on the understanding that they would supply the crown with men and ships at times of war. And those towns were historically uh, Sandwich, Romney, Dover, Hythe and Hastings. And as I said, since the 1700s, it also came with Wilmer Castle. So that's the title that he held. And obviously he was based at that property. What can you tell us about the man himself, Lord Beecham? His name was William Ligon. And another spelling coming up here, it's L-Y-G-O-N. I always thought it was Ligon, but it's pronounced Ligon. He was born in 1872 to Frederick Ligon, 6th Earl Beecham, and his first wife, Lady Mary Catherine. He inherited the title of the 7th Earl Beecham upon the death of his father in 1891. And at that time, he was only 18 years old. Give you a bit of background about the Ligon family. They're an ancient noble family. Their roots can be traced right back to the Norman Conquest. And their ancestral home is Madrasfield Court in Worcestershire, near the Mal- at the bottom of the Malvern Hills. And that's been the family seat, if you like, since the 1100s. And it's never been sold, which gives it the title of the longest line of unbroken family ownership in the country, if you don't count the royal family. Very powerful individual then. Exactly. Yeah. Very, very aristocratic, as aristocratic as you can get, really. So he inherited the title age 18. He was educated at Eton College and Christ Church, Oxford, as all the best aristocrats are, of course. He was appointed <laughs> um, Mayor of Worcester, aged 23. In 1899, the ageing Queen Victoria appointed him Governor of the Colony of New South Wales in Australia. And he was only 27 at that point. He said at the time that he barely knew where the colony was, let alone anything about it. But he accepted the position graciously. His governorship didn't last very long. He gave it up two years later. But he continued a long sort of relationship with Australia, which I'll talk about a a bit later on. Instead, he came back home to England and he forged a political career for himself here. He joined the Liberal Party and he soon rose through the ranks and became a high-flying figure in the party. He was made a senior cabinet minister, Lord President of the Council under Lord Asquith's government in 1910. And interestingly for us, the same year he became the Commissioner for the Office of Works. 
Now, the Office of Works was a government department which oversaw all building and conservation work to royal residences and government buildings. And that later became English heritage. Of course. He then carried the sword of state at the coronation of George V in 1911, which was a role which was always undertaken by the Lord President of the Council, one which we saw Penny Mordaunt take on at the recent coronation of King Charles. She held that. That's right. Let's go back to Lord Beecham. He was Liberal leader in the House of Lords right up until 1932. And as I said, he became Lord Warden of the Cinque Ports in 1913, and that came with Warmer Castle. As the holder of this title, this was sort of before air travel had really taken off. You know, one of his main duties was to welcome foreign dignitaries arriving at Dover on behalf of the king. And uh, he really loved the pomp and ceremony that came with that role. So basically, he was living a very good life. You know, all of those amazing public offices. He was very rich and aristocratic. He had a successful career, lots of titles, friends in all the right places, and a seemingly very happy family life as well. But he suffered a spectacular fall from grace in 1931 when his homosexual affairs were exposed and he was forced to flee the country. Yes, because we should say that he was actually married during all of this, wasn't he, with children? He was, yeah. So tell us a bit more about his personal life and what his relationships were. So he had a wife, but then he also had these relationships with men. Yeah, he did. So if I go back to sort of the earliest sort of references of him, by all accounts, he was he was a refined, articulate, confident and very likable person. And it's sort of these qualities that allowed him to rise so quickly through the ranks. Of course, that was coupled with his aristocratic breeding. He was also quite a catch in terms of relationships. The poet Wilfred Blunt described, described him as a good-looking, smooth-faced young man. Now, not much is known about relationships he had in his youth, although he was aware of his sexuality throughout his teenage years. And he suffered a series of breakdowns into his early 20s, which was presumably due to sort of coming to terms with his sexuality, which he realised was not what was expected at that time, you know. After he gave up the governorship of New South Wales in 1902 and he moved back to England, he was 30 at this stage, he married Lady Lettuce Grosvenor, who was the sister of Hugh Grosvenor, the Duke of Westminster. He was informally, or to most people, he was known as Ben Dor due to his coat of arms. Uh, a bend is a sort of diagonal stripe and Dor is the colour refers to the colour gold. So it's a gold diagonal stripe on a blue background. So he was known as Bendor. And he was one of the richest men in Europe. I will mention him again later as he was instrumental in the downfall of Beecham. And he was, so he was his brother-in-law. By 1916, uh, Lord Beecham and Lady Lettuce had seven children. William, who was the oldest son, who inherited the title later. Hugh, who was Lord Beecham's favourite son. And we also believe to be gay or bisexual, and um, we'll mention him again later. There was Lady Lettuce, Lady Sybil, Lady Mary, who was known as Mamie, and Lady Dorothy, who was known as Coot, and then Richard, who the youngest son, who was known as Dickie. And from the outside, Beecham seemed to have an extremely happily married life. Photographs of the family spending lots of happy summers at Walmer Castle and on the beach at Walmer show this. But behind this public facade, he was living a secret and, at the time, criminal gay life. Sexual acts between men 
were criminalised at this time. They weren't decriminalised in England and Wales until 1967. And while at Warmer Castle in the 20s, he held some racy parties in the garden to which he invited his gay aristocratic friends as well as local working class people like fishermen and young men from the area. Mm-hmm. These stories of his parties and his guests, are these written examples that survive well? Yeah, well, it's a funny one, this. We don't have much that's come down to us from the man himself. I mean, remember, it was illegal. If you were doing something illegal, you wouldn't really want to write explicitly about it. You know, it could fall into the wrong hands and could end you up either being blackmailed for the rest of your life or put in jail. Talking about written examples, there are lots of them. And there's a mention in his early diaries describing a statue that he saw in Greece, which was the Hermes by Praxiteles. And he said it was the finest male statue he'd ever seen. He went on to say that the Greek men that he'd met on his travels were uninteresting and none of them he met while there compared to the statue in face or figure. And this comparison of people to classical statues is something he took with him into later life as when he was much older he occasionally wrote for the Australian press and he said that the local Australian men this is a quote here were splendid athletes like the old Greek statues their skins are tanned by sun and wind and I doubt whether anywhere in the world are finer specimens of manhood the lifesavers at the bathing beaches are wonderful (laughs) (laughs) he was really enjoying his time in Australia he really did yes yeah he loved life this man In 1901, when Beecham was in his late 20s, we've got a diary entry by Lord Mersey commenting on the good looks of the footmen and other all-male staff that Beecham had employed for a party that he attended. And this is something that became more conspicuous as time went on. When he was governor of New South Wales, an article in the Australian Star said, and this is a direct quote again, the most striking feature of the vice-regal menage is the youthfulness of its members. Rosy-cheeked footmen, clad in liveries of fawn, heavily ornamented in silver and red brocade, with many lanyards hanging from their broad shoulders. Lord Beecham deserves great credit for his taste in footmen. It's pretty obvious, isn't it, really? It is. It's all very tongue-in-cheek. You know, there's nothing there that actually approves anything. You know, anything explicitly illegal had gone on or anything like that. But yes, it's, it's all there. And once you put all these things together... I've got more examples if you want me to go into them. Those are probably some some pretty juicy ones, I must admit. Um, Did Lord Beecham's high status in society give him protection from, you know, what people are noticing fundamentally? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, being in high society always does afford a certain amount of protection. I mean, high society, what we call high society now, may be slightly different. You know, it might be A-list Hollywood stars or something. But um, yeah, it does always afford a certain amount of protection. People in his elite social circle of friends, they knew about his homosexual proclivities. He wasn't very discreet, really. But being part of the aristocratic elite, a blind eye was, was seemingly turned, you know. At this time, this sort of like early 20th century, there were lots of other aristocrats and rich or famous people who were experimenting with their sexuality including the writer Vita Sackville-West and her husband Harold Nicholson. I think Dominique is going to mention parts of the Bloomsbury group. Someone once said of them that they lived lived in squares, they painted in circles and loved in triangles. And they were always experimenting with gender norms and same-sex relationships. 
this huge class divide existed where aristocrats and famous people had a certain amount of protection from the law. I mean, if Lord Beecham had have been a commoner, his story would have played out very differently. I think what Nick's saying is is absolutely right, that if you were of a particular class or had a particular you know, standing in society, that you had a lot more flexibility. But it's definitely the case that people, you know, even those who were prominent, well-known figures, those who were wealthy, still were liable to having their lives destroyed if people found out or the wrong people found out. You know, Oscar Wilde is a great example of that. And I think even for people who felt relatively secure with the people they felt they could trust, there's always that danger in the background that that certainly would have followed them around, that it all could be taken away with a snap of fingers. And there was that precarity, that sense of anxiety must have been absolutely palpable for everyone. And even this kind of happy-go-lucky kind of lifestyle that Nick's describing for Lord Beecham, you know, he would have been absolutely aware that it all could have disappeared in an instant. And he might well have found himself in a very, very dangerous and very serious situation very quickly. Exactly. There was quite a close call, wasn't there, at Warmer Castle at one of these dinner parties involving a waiter, I believe, and, oh, yeah. and Lord Beecham. What, what happened there? Because a guest overheard something, didn't they? Yes. There's a story when the politician Harold Nicholson, who I did just mention earlier, he was the husband of writer Vita Sackville-West, he was at a dinner party at Lord Beecham's and he recalled an astonished fellow guest saying, did I just hear Beecham whisper to the butler, je t'adore, meaning I love you? And Nicholson replied, nonsense. He said, shut the door. But, <laughs> but he knew that the other guest had indeed heard correctly. Yes, the Madrasfield butler. Bradford, his name was, was an exceptionally handsome man. And Nicholson knew that Beecham employed staff for their good looks. I mean, we, we can laugh about it now because obviously shut that door then became a phrase that was that yeah, used <laughs> in, um, I believe, in the 1970s, wasn't it, by a, a famous television presenter who was gay. Yes, um, I hadn't, hadn't actually and, made and that quite um, link. Yeah. I suppose people can laugh at that, but um, this would have been quite a... as. Dominique was saying precarious situation. Yeah, I think, yes, it, you're dead right, Dominique. It is that there would have always been this absolute fear in the background of being discovered. And when I say that Lord Beecham's status in high society did afford him a certain amount of protection, it didn't really stop his life being ruined. Mm. He really did flirt with disaster on that occasion, I must say. Yeah. How did Lord Beecham's covert, and at this time technically criminal gay life then really become exposed because he's sort of hiding in plain sight in a way yeah he's got some sort of protections how does it become really a real political problem i think he became too complacent is the short answer to that what happened is that in 1930 he went on a around the world tour and he spent two months in sydney australia which he knew very well and he took a reputed lover with him, the MP Robert Bernays, and also a valet who travelled with him, not as his servant, but seemingly as another lover. This unconventional grouping didn't go unnoticed by the Australian government. When he intended on visiting Canberra for an official governmental dinner, his hosts told him that the valet was not allowed to come because he was basically taking him everywhere with him as if he was a partner you know word reached london and his brother-in-law 
who I mentioned earlier, Hugh Grosvenor, the Duke of Westminster, or Ben Dor, saw an opportunity to ruin Beecham. Now, he had always disliked Beecham. He was jealous of all of the public offices he held and of his apparent domestic happiness. He had three sons who would succeed him in his line. The Duke of Westminster had none. The Duke of Westminster had always also been divorced and the king had not let him fill some of the titles and positions which he felt that he should have been able to have done. And he thought that, okay, Beecham has got all of these lovely titles, but he's actually living a criminal life. The Duke of Westminster was also a staunch Tory, whereas Beecham was a liberal. So to ruin Beecham would not only satisfy his personal vendettas, but it would also be politically advantageous. He hired private detectives to follow Beecham and uh, began to build a case. By the summer of 1931, he had enough evidence and he denounced Beecham as a homosexual to King George V, who reportedly responded, why, I thought people like that always shot themselves. Right. Why did King George V receive this denunciation and why was this supposedly not reported to the police? Yeah, I think because of all of his duties and titles and official positions, it's another sort of example of the way things work differently for aristocrats. And it's almost a a sort of immunity that they have to the normal course of justice, which someone like you or I would, would have had to have gone through. Westminster did insist to the king that Beecham should be arrested, but the king didn't want to fuss. If it went through the courts, the trial would be incredibly public. You know, I said at the beginning how sort of important and high up in the aristocracy Beecham was, and him being a peer meant that he was entitled to a trial by the House of Lords. And the idea of male prostitutes being summoned to give evidence and gay love letters being read out would drag the House of Lords and the elite through the mud. Remember, you know, it was criminal at the time and the House of Lords really didn't need that, especially at this time as it had already had its fair share of scrutiny in recent years. And furthermore, the royal family and the Beechams were actually very close. I said that he carried the sword at his coronation. That was one of his official duties. But the king's son, Prince George, was very close to one of Lord Beecham's daughters, Mary or Mamie. In fact, they actually seemed set to be engaged. Uh, right, OK. So there's there's really a lot at stake here. This yeah. would have been a, an enormous scandal if Agreed it had gone public and had gone through the courts. Yeah. The king didn't want to fuss, as you've said. It would have been a massive news story. How then was Beecham dealt with? Well, one summer evening in 1931, the king sent three Knights of the Garter to deliver a message to Beecham. He told them to tell him that he'd been presented with evidence of his committing unnatural crimes and that to avoid a scandal, which, as you just said, no one wanted, he should leave the country by midnight, giving up all his public offices, never to return, so he should retire. Where did he flee to and how did his story develop from that point? Beecham that night gathered his children at dinner that evening and he explained his choices. He was very open and very pragmatic about it and he thought he had no choice but to commit suicide. He left the following day and fled first to Germany but his favourite son Hugh went with him and successfully managed to dissuade him from killing himself. The Duke of Westminster presented his evidence to his sister, Lettuce, Beecham's wife, He did it so indelicately that she suffered a a huge nervous breakdown. 
with the help of her brother, or basically her brother basically submitted a petition for divorce and moved her to his estate in Cheshire. And uh, she took to her bed and she, she remained there for the rest of her life. The divorce petition called Lord Beecham a man of perverted sexual practices who has committed acts of gross indecency with male servants and other male persons and has been guilty of sodomy throughout the married life. Westminster ordered Beecham's children to testify against their father, but they all refused. Their support for him never wavered. He was a really loving father to his children. They, they absolutely adored him and they refused to testify against him. Westminster became their worst enemy. He was their uncle, remember? And he let it be known that anyone dealing with the ligands would be dropped from society. And in, in an extraordinary display of spite, the Duke of Westminster apparently wrote Beecham a short letter and it reads, Dear bugger-in-law, you got what you deserved. Yours, Westminster. <sighs> wow. <laughs> I know, it's shocking, isn't it? It's quite a catty kind of uh, <laughs> yeah, letter, really, isn't it? Um, yeah. Perhaps a gentleman of greater nobility would just dust his hands off and sort of disappear off into the distance, but he really wanted to stick the knife in, didn't yeah. he? I mean, Beecham got over the trauma of the exile and, and, and he settled into it. He, he never spoke of um, his brother-in-law or his estranged wife again. And the children took turns visiting their father. He split his time between mostly Paris, Venice, Sydney and San Francisco, all very liberal cities where homosexuality was generally tolerated at that time. Tragically, his favourite son, Hugh, died from an alcohol-related fall while he was on holiday in Germany in 1936. And Beecham was distraught, obviously. He managed to briefly return to England for his funeral without being arrested. But literally, as soon as the funeral was over, God, he, was, he was gone again. And it wasn't until George VI succeeded the throne that the warrant for his arrest was lifted. He finally returned to England in 37, And he moved back to his family home in Worcestershire, where he spent a happy year with his children. Sadly, he was ill and uh, he died of cancer in New York the following year in 1938. How did Beecham's life come to be recorded in newspaper obituaries then, bearing in mind everything that we're talking about now? Was all this stuff exposed? No, it wasn't. His daughter, Sybil, was in a relationship with Lord Beaverbrook, who was a huge press baron. And these links meant that they were able to keep the story contained and out of the press. It wasn't reported in the paper at all. Obituary-wise, when he died, it wasn't mentioned either. It was basically just a long list of all of his achievements, like the things that I read out at the beginning, you know, Lord Warden of the St. Ports and um, Lord President of the Council and leader of the Liberal Party and everything like that. Isn't there something about Lord Beecham that finds its way into fiction? Yes, the various misfortunes of his family inspired one of the most famous novels of the 20th century, which is Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Waugh, released in 1945. And the character of Lord Marchmain, who is exiled out in Venice, I think is in the story, was based on Beecham himself, although there's no mention of a, of a gay scandal. His son, Hugh, provided inspiration for Sebastian Flight in the novel. So the reason that they kind of got into uh, Evelyn Waugh's consciousness, the reason that he came to know about them was that he, Evelyn Waugh and Hugh, were at Oxford together in the early 1920s. 
and uh, war became obsessed with country house society. Evelyn War developed a major crush on the charming, gay, drunk aristocrat and Though we don't know for sure, they're rumoured to have had a homosexual affair. He called um, he called Hugh the lascivious Mr. Ligon. Now, he and War didn't have a particularly long relationship. Hugh was a bit of a wild child and was off doing his own thing. He wrote very few letters and there are barely any photos of him. So sadly, not much is known. And as I said earlier, he died in 1936 while drunk on a driving holiday in Germany. But Evelyn War went on to form very strong bonds with his sisters who were known in high society, quite pleasingly, as the Beecham Bells. In particular, he was friends with Mary, Mamie and Dorothy, who was known as Coot. And there are some lovely photos of them sort of hanging out, partying and having fun together. They're the, sort of the embodiment of the bright young things, these bohemian young aristocrats and socialites of London in the 20s and 30s. So Evelyn War, starting with Hugh at Oxford, sort of fell in love with this family who had suffered the spectacular fall from grace and been shunned from high society and and in turn they loved him back and he used the Ligons as inspiration for the Flight family in the novel Brideshead Revisited. In the author's note at the beginning of the book he writes, I am not I, thou art not he or she, they are not they, which I think gives it all away really. He's basically saying that if you know the book that Charles Ryder is himself Sebastian is Hugh, Lord Marchmain is Lord Beecham, and then Julia is Mamie, Cordelia is the sweet, kind coot, and even their eldest brother, Elmley, features as the eldest son, Bridie. Uh, I see. Interesting. Yeah. Well, what a story for Lord Beecham. Let's move on to another character from LGBTQ plus history. I say character. I know we're talking about stories here, but they are real people. So. Yeah. But it is a fantastic story. Dominique, you're going to talk about Anne Seymour Damer. She's connected to another English heritage property, isn't she? Um, Which one is this? That's right. It's a bit of an oblique connection, but the connection to the property is Ranger's House in Greenwich. And it's actually a collection item that's on display at Ranger's House, which kind of is is one of the only pieces on display there, which feels like it's got a, a more of a genuine connection to the house. So So here's the connection kind of as follows. So there's a sculpture at Rangers. It's a portrait bust, which depicts Caroline of Brunswick, who was Princess of Wales from 1795 and later Queen. She was the estranged wife of King George IV from 1820. And it's a a portrait bust of her, which is at Rangers House. So Caroline was a personal friend of Anne Seymour Damer, who did the sculpture from life. And that's kind of the connection in, in its simplest form. I see. Anne Seymour Damer was, came from an aristocratic family. And in the not at Rangers, but at Montague House, which is a, a place that's been demolished, which is next door to Rangers, Caroline had established a kind of rival regency court while she was estranged from her husband. And she frequently entertained sort of the great and good of society. And Anne Seymour Damer was certainly amongst that set. So as well as kind of creating the sculpture on display at Ranger's House, Anne was part of that cultural life of neighboring Montague House as well. Was Anne Seymour Damer lesbian? So Damer came from, as I said, an aristocratic family. She was the daughter of the Honorable Henry Seymour Conway, who was a distinguished army officer and Whig politician, and Caroline Campbell, who was the daughter of the fourth Duke of Argyle and the widow of Charles Bruce, who was the third Earl of Aylesbury, for those people who really love this stuff. 
Anne spent her childhood at Park Place near Henley, and her father's cousin was the politician and writer Horace Walpole. Damer's parents did quite a lot of traveling, and Walpole was hugely important throughout Anne's life. He was her godfather, and he acted as her guardian during the time when her parents were, were absent abroad. And that relationship between them was in- incredibly important and really important historically for historians as well, because a lot of what we know about Anne Damer, um, or a certain amount of it, uh, certainly about her art, comes through the voice and letters and writing of Horace Walpole. And when Walpole died in 1897, he bequeathed his house at Strawberry Hill to her. So, you know, you really get a real sense of, of that strong family connection. But also, we know Walpole had a sort of very unique individual in history and culture and, and sort of, you know, ran with a, very, with a hugely cultured and, and intellectual set. And Damer's connection to that is a good way of, of framing how we understand her as well. So going back to your question, so was she gay? I guess the concept of being homosexual, never mind gay, didn't really exist in the 18th century in the way that we would understand it today. But we do know that Anne had intense relationships with several women, particularly the writer Mary Berry. And we know that the relationship between Anne and Mary was very loving and romantic, and there's a good reason to believe that it was also sexual. So I think we can think of Anne's life and work as a part of the history of lesbians and gay women. So she's in this period of history where relationships are happening, obviously. Is it a criminal thing at this time? Lesbian acts were never specifically criminalized in the UK, but lesbianism in the 18th century and the 19th centuries was taboo and unacceptable. And lesbians in Anne's period were sometimes prosecuted, often for fraud, if they dressed in clothes usually worn by men. And some of these women might today identify as as trans men. Anne Seymour Damer lived a generation or two earlier than Anne Lister, who was from 1791 to 1840, whom some some listeners will know from the television series Gentleman Jack. And rather like Anne Seymour Damer, Anne Lister's wealth and status, and as we talked about before, but particularly with Anne Lister, her kind of uncompromising personality, allowed her to live a fairly open life. But many lesbian women in this period would have been much more vulnerable to the consequences of society's hostility to them. You've mentioned that obviously she has had relationships with women. Can you give us a bit more detail about those? I think it would be useful to kind of understand her trajectory a little bit. So Anne's trajectory is, I'd say, pretty conventional for aristocratic women of her era. She married John Damer, who was the eldest son of the first Earl of Dorchester, and they were really at the heart of London society. Anne took her place amongst that group of Whig hostesses, including Georgiana, the Duchess of Devonshire, who, as listeners may be aware, is connected to Chiswick House and Elizabeth Lamb, who was the Viscountess of Melbourne. And the three of these, three women, Anne Damer, Georgiana, the Duchess of Devonshire, and Elizabeth Lamb, were you know, really these celebrated women at the heart of this society. And there's a wonderful painting, actually, in the National Portrait Gallery by Daniel Gardner, which depicts them as the three witches from Macbeth. And I, I think that's kind of an important visual to have as well. Sorry, it's not a painting, it's, um, it's a, a, a pastel. Now, Damer's marriage to her husband was really very unhappy, and despite the fact that he was really wealthy, he fell into considerable debt, and after seven years of marriage, they separated. In 1776, he took his own life in a pub in Covent Garden, and it was due to this that Anne was forced to withdraw from society. But kind of ironically, it was also in this phase of her life that she was able to pursue her interest in sculpture. And so that 
transition from being the wife of an aristocrat in that very heavily regulated societal structure of that period in the 18th century and early 19th century meant that you know she would have been very restricted but of course once she kind of fell from that position due to the shame of her husband taking his own life it allowed her to a kind of a freedom in a way that she wouldn't have had because of her social status it, it, i think there's a real irony there and as a result of this she went off to study art. And she was a traveler. She was an actor. She was a writer. She really immersed herself in artistic studies. In 1801, she published a successful novel called Belmore. She was a fluent French speaker. She visited Napoleon on Elba. He gave her a snuff box. She, be, she made friends with Josephine. And you know she had this really eccentric life. And I think that is the context in which we, we need to understand her relationships with other women and through that art and through her her role as really an incredibly acclaimed artist of her time. And the memory of that acclaim today has really just dwindled away. She was exhibited at the Royal Academy, or I should say her work was. That was unusual, was it not? Extraordinarily unusual. She exhibited 32 works of art as an honorary exhibitor. It's likely that her sex meant that she wasn't kind of accepted in the way that male artists were. There's an academic at Cambridge called Dr. Caroline Gonda, who's really the leading world authority on Damer. She's done a lot of work recently to really unpick Damer's artistic work, but also her Greek scholarship, which is a really important part of understanding Damer's relationships with women. Caroline has said that Damer's art has really been undervalued, partly because she's a woman and an aristocrat. And of course, both of those factors have led people to assume that she can't be really serious about her work because she was rich and, and had that kind of social standing. But I think there's also an element of reaction against Walpole's kind of extravagant praise of her work, which meant that people weren't properly looking at the art itself. So Damer worked as a sculptor. She mainly worked making busts in the neoclassical style, but in terracotta, bronze, and in marble. She has made really very important public art in addition to the sculptures that are in various collections around the world. But for example, the keystone sculptures of Isis and Temesis for the central arch of the bridge at Henley were made by her. And the original models are in the Henley River and Rowing Museum, which people can visit, although I don't know if they're on display. And she made another incredibly over-life-size statue of Apollo, 10 feet tall, that's now destroyed, which was for part of the frontage of Drury Lane Theater. And she also made an over-life-size statue of King George III for the Edinburgh Register Office. And I think it's still there. And, and so I think when we come up with an understanding of Anne Damer, she had this incredible, in some way, fall from grace and shame, although we wouldn't think of it as shameful now. But in, in that society and the, the social traditions, she had this kind of fall from society. But what that did was release her into kind of pursue the things, her passions. And I think that that fall is part of what has also made it challenging to unpick her relationships with women. It sounds like from what you're saying there that she she became exposed as a lesbian, effectively. Uh, Is that right? She was definitely ridiculed as one. I mean, unfortunately, Damer insisted that all her correspondence be burned upon her death. So that's really not particularly useful for historians later. And most of Damer's papers are lost. Four of her notebooks do survive, though, at the Lewis Walpole Library, and they're full of extracts from loving letters 
from the writer Mary Berry, who was her closest companion. The notebooks also contain these classical quotations from the literature that they both loved. And again, it's Caroline Gonda whose eyes were seeing this through, and she's really characterized the record that Damer chose to preserve in those notebooks as what she calls an intense and intimate one of a relationship often seen as the likeness of souls. So it's a relation of really caring, sharing confidences, small everyday details, as well as comments on reading and study. And it's not always an easy relationship either on the basis of this correspondence, particularly given the pressures of social expectation, but it's clear that it's a a strong and loving one. So I think there's something else here, which is that some of Damer's letters to Barry also survive. And despite the kinds of taboo around these relationships, you know, that's because, according to Caroline Gonda, that Barry couldn't really bring herself to destroy the evidence of having been an object of such faithful devotion. So, as you said, in her time, people did talk about her as a lesbian, not not using that word. Her friends and contemporaries wrote about her wearing male clothing and also about her intense friendships with women. And a contemporary of hers wrote, she wears a man's hat and shoes and a jacket also like a man's. Thus, she walks about the fields with a hooking stick. The ecstasies of meeting and the tender leave on separating between Mrs. Damer and Mrs. Berry's is whimsical. On Miss Berry going lately to Cheltenham, the servants described the separation between her and Mrs. Damer as if they had been parting before death. So that's not really the way most friends say goodbye to each other, like, yeah, maybe see you next week. That suggests something quite a lot more intense and intimate. There's a diarist called Hester Lynch Thrale who wrote in her journal that Anne was, quote, a lady much suspected for liking her own sex in a criminal way. And an anonymous published pamphlet also explicitly accused Anne of being sapphic, i.e. a lesbian, and having sexual relationships with women, although the pamphleteer also claimed that sex between Anne and her lovers wasn't really sex because there was no man involved. So that quote from that is, there's not in them enough of a man to rise to fornication. So it's, it's really clear public statements being made, clearly indicating, pointing at Ann Damer and saying that she has sexual relationships with women or that she has relationships with women which make people feel are not typical friendships and potentially rise to to characterize them as, as potentially sexual. So in that time, you know, of course, Ann Seymour Damer lived from 1748 to 1828. So she lived more than 100 years earlier than Lord Beecham. And in the 18th century, male homosexuality was absolutely criminalized and men could be hanged for unnatural acts. You know, as I said before, lesbian sexual acts were never specifically criminalized, but there was definitely a danger for women in pursuing or having romantic or sexual relationships with other women. And that could be criminalized differently than for male homosexuality. But it was certainly the case that it wasn't easy for women either. So both sexes were treated differently in terms of their approach to the same sex relationships. That's absolutely right. We'll move on now to a couple more LGBTQ plus people from the past. Virginia Woolf is another person we can touch on. And that keeps the London theme going because we're talking about blue plaques now. And she has one on a property in the capital. Where is that, Dominique? Virginia Woolf's blue plaque is on 29 Fitzroy Square, right in the heart of Bloomsbury, nearby to the other plaques that remember women and artists connected to the so-called Bloomsbury Group. 
And several of those, that group were also gay or bisexual. Bloomsbury has really long been an area that's been associated with writing and intellectuals. And in fact, one of the previous tenants of number 29 Fitzroy Square was George Bernard Shaw. So Virginia Stephen, as she was then, rented number 29 with her brother Adrian in 1907 and lived there for four years. She took over the second floor of the house, and that's where she began writing her first novel called The Voyage Out that was published in 1915. And she wrote that in her sitting room where she say, great pyramids of books with trailing mists between them, partly dust, partly cigarette smoke. So you get a real sense of that writer with the cigarette and the kind of aura of Bloomsbury is really, really evoked. And of course, Virginia Woolf is usually considered one of the greatest 20th century novelists. And there's there's no time to explain her life and work more broadly, but I think most people will have heard of her. How would you place then Virginia Woolf in her career in terms of LGBTQ plus history? Her life and career is particularly remembered by LGBTQ plus people today for her relationship with the writer Vita Sackville-West. Woolf met Sackville-West in 1922 and they quickly became close. And that relates back to Lord Beecham because Vita Sackville-West was one of Lord Beecham's guests at his parties. Absolutely. So, you, you know, you see these circles of bohemians and of our creative and artistic bohemians. And with that, it usually gets associated with a kind of sexual fluidity or, or at least sexual interest in, in exploring all that life has to offer. Between 1925 and 1935, Sackville West and Virginia Woolf were in an intimate sexual and romantic relationship, although they were both married to men. Vita believed that Virginia's mental health was stronger than Virginia and her doctors believed, and that Virginia Woolf should focus on her writing, but their relationship was hugely creative time for Woolf, who wrote three of her greatest novels, To the Lighthouse, Orlando, and The Waves, between 1927 and 1931. And Orlando in particular, published in 1928, is perhaps the writing of Virginia Woolf, which has had the greatest significance for LGBTQ plus history. Woolf was inspired by Vita Sackville-West to write it, and Orlando, a biography to give its full title, tells the fictional story of a gorgeous poet modeled on Vita who lives for centuries and who is sometimes a man and sometimes a woman. And it was, you know, Orlando was understood by contemporaries to be partly based on the personal relationship between the two women, but it's written in a literary and allegorical style. The novel was widely praised at the time and ever since for its beauty and, and innovativeness. And Orlando is a short but incredibly rich book that kind of defies limits and categorization. It inspired feminists, lesbians, bisexuals, and transgender readers, as well as lovers of literature. So it's a really... if listeners haven't read it. It's a wonderful, incredibly creative book to read. Fascinating. So her life was being reflected in her uh, literature. Virginia Woolf, I think, reflected a whole set of experiences, but Orlando was certainly written in the period when she was in a relationship with Vida. She was talking about LGBTQ plus experience in her own writing is what I'm trying to say. I think that that's right. I think that that's right. Let's move on to Radcliffe Hall, who has a blue plaque as well. Now, for people who don't know the name, it's quite uh, ambiguous. Is, is that a man or a lady? Um, her blue plaque is in Kensington at 37 Holland Street, and she lived there with her partner, Una, Lady Trowbridge. They were living together when Radcliffe wrote the book, The Well of Loneliness, which is the one she's most well known for. And they were still living in Holland Street when The Well of Loneliness was banned soon after its publication in 1928, which embroiled both of them in absolute scandal. 
Tell us a bit more about that then. Radcliffe Hall was, a, was an author. She wrote seven novels, but she's clearly remembered for the fifth one, The Well of Loneliness. It came out in 1928, ironically, as the same year as Virginia Woolf's book, Orlando. But whereas the literary refinement of Orlando meant that Virginia and Vita largely escaped public criticism, it was very different for The Well of Loneliness. The book, if anyone has ever read it, also an incredibly interesting book, very important book in the history of homosexuality, of, of LGBTQ plus culture. The book is an intense melodrama that describes a passionate relationship between two women, the difficulties of being a lesbian in the early 20th century and the suffering and shame caused by what we would today call homophobia. It caused immediate shockwaves in British society. George Douglas, who was the editor of the Sunday Express, famously said, I would rather give a healthy boy or a healthy girl a vial of prussic acid than this novel. And he campaigned energetically for it to be banned. How did it even get published then to start with? I think, you know, you don't know that something is going to get banned necessarily or something's going to be a problem until after you do it. You know, the first time something does something that causes an uproar, you know, it's not necessarily predictable. And if you think about the fact that Virginia Woolf had published Orlando, in 1928, for example, the same year, but didn't have that kind of response. I think it's hard to say that this was sort of a, you know, a predicted course of events response to the publication. Mm. Yeah. So in November 1928, and actually, I think there are some things that happened around this time as well, which may have contributed. So in November of that year, really shortly after the publication, the publishers of The Well of Loneliness, Jonathan Cape, were charged with obscenity. I think there's a kind of tolerance that's been creeping up and then maybe, you know, at some point it can happen that maybe society or, or, or somebody says feels like they've had enough and the, the shutters come down. And in the case of, of Jonathan Cape, who was the publisher of The Well of Loneliness, you know, over 40 authors and intellectuals turned up at the trial to give evidence in defense of the book. And that included Virginia Woolf, actually. However, the chief magistrate, Sir Charles Byron, declined to hear evidence from any of them or from Radcliffe Hall herself. And Byron declared the book obscene, partly because although the characters' books experienced much unhappiness, Byron believed that the book did not punish its characters enough. So it wasn't bad enough that actually Stephen, who's the main character in The Well of Loneliness, is really it's a terrible time and is very unhappy. The chief magistrate really wanted to be very clear that these people needed to be punished. And he wrote in his judgment that a book which showed, quote, the moral and physical degradation which indulgence in those vices must necessarily involve might have been allowed, but in The Well of Loneliness, the reader's sympathy remains with the protagonist. And I, I think that that may well be part of the reason why there was this kind of uproar and issue around The Well of Loneliness, is that even though Stephen has a really terrible time, she's not punished quite enough. You, you sympathize with her as opposed to feeling like she needs to be punished. And so The Well of Loneliness was banned, and it remained banned until 1949. The labor government after the Second World War warned that they might prosecute anyone attempting to republish it. But when Falcon Press brought out an edition anyway, the government decided not to bring proceedings. And so The Well of Loneliness has remained in print ever since. And it's often considered really to be the most depressing le lesbian novel ever written. It hugely increased public awareness of lesbians. And it's also been seen as a really powerful plea for tolerance and acceptance. 
Radcliffe Hall herself refused to be cowed by the controversy and just continued to write and live openly with her partner until her death in 1943. So it, its publication is in some ways can be seen as an act of defiance. It was banned. It was brought back in. But under all this huge sense that it contributed to some kind of degradation in society. But Stephen, the main character, is incredibly sympathetic and you can't help but feel for her. And so it's been a really important book in that kind of transformation and helping people to empathize with LGBTQ plus people. So at the time that she died, which I think you said was 1943. That's right. The book was still banned at that point. That's correct. And so only really with the passing of time, her legacy has now been that her story continues to be told after her death, which is some satisfaction, I think, for the story and also for people who are in the LGBTQ plus community. That must be um, quite comforting in a way. I think so. You know, I think we've come, you know, we've come a long way since the early 20th century. And of course, there's still a long way to go. I think a lot of people still feel a sense of shame. And one of the things that you can't help but feel when you read these books, and, when, and particularly around Radcliffe Hall and, and her story, you know, she was really a brave person to kind of live herself, her authentic life defiantly in the face of, of ridicule, of people, of public ridicule. And I think the book itself is itself was as a, a form of it's hard to feel like it's a form of activism because of the, the sadness around it. But it, it played such an important role. And I think the role of empathy in sort of the struggle for equality for LGBTQ plus people has been a really important feature of the movement. And I think The Well of Lonely's particular, if anybody does read it, I think that's a, it's one of its most powerful effects. Let's move back to Nick now to um, round out our conversation. Are, are there any other English heritage sites linked to stories about LGBTQ plus people from the past that uh, people can connect with today? Yes, there are lots. The first one that springs to mind, first of all, is El Elton Palace in southeast London. Its first royal owner was Edward II. King Edward II was a very ill-fated king. He had lots of male lovers, which basically led to him being deposed and murdered. So that's a, quite a bleak story there. Later on in its life, well, it, it fell into ruin, basically, after the Civil War. And it was bought in the 1930s by a very rich couple, the Courtaulds. And uh, they employed two architects called John Seeley and Paul Paget. Their architectural firm was called Seeley and Paget. And they were partners in business, but their partnership went a lot deeper than that. We don't fully understand the, the nature of their relationship, but they lived together in a house in uh, the city of London and they worked together and they seemed to have a very, very strong homosocial, if not sexual bond. They transformed the medieval ruins of, of Elton Palace into the Art Deco palace that we see there today. We're actually approaching their centenary of their, of their architectural firm and um, English Heritage is working on a project with lots of other partners to commemorate that. So hopefully so there'll be some more research done into their relationship as part of that project. Uh, we've also uncovered stories at Chiswick House, which um, Dominique alluded to earlier, Georgiana, the Duchess of Devonshire, Revo Abbey, Battle Abbey, Farley Hungerford Castle, Hadrian's Wall, 
And we've recently launched a self-led LGBTQ plus tour at Rangers House as well in Greenwich, where that bust of Carolina Brunswick by Anne Seymour Damer is on display and actually forms part of the tour there. Um, you can find out about all of those stories on the English Heritage website. If you just type in English Heritage and LGBTQ into a search engine, they'll all come up. And um, there's more research underway. And we're looking forward to telling more hidden histories like this in the future. Absolutely. There's lots to uncover and across the country, as you say, you know, from the south to the north. Exactly. So that's, yeah. that's really useful. If you are living in the north of England, you can go and explore those stories there and, and vice versa. I know. I realise that this podcast has actually been quite south centric. <laughs> uh, that's something that we're, we're very keen to move away on, away from. So how is discovering these stories of LGBTQ plus people changing the way that English heritage sites are explained to visitors, Dominique? We talk about and we do try to tell the fullest possible story of the National Heritage Collection. And we always find more to say about English heritage sites. But in the way in which people today share their lives in an, in an incredibly open way, certainly compared to the past, and society's conventions and structures, which governed everyday interactions with people, certainly in the public, but also in private too, mean that the kind of vast reams of information we have about somebody's personal life, for lack of a better term, today is what we're used to. It's just kind of out of all proportion in most instances to what's available or on display about people in the past. And what's extraordinary about people like Radcliffe Hall and Virginia Woolf in particular, isn't just that they existed, but that we have such insights into their lives. And when you start training as an archaeologist or a historian, one of the first things you learn is that absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. As historians, it's really important that we're guided by the evidence that we have, but we also need to understand the historical context in which evidence not only exists, but is created, survives, and so forth. And so maybe this seems like we've strayed from LGBTQ plus history in my answer to your question. But really, LGBTQ plus history is history like everything else. It's just that it requires a slightly different and maybe more specialized set of tools to explore because of the historic, although not totally universal, criminalization of homosexuality and the oppressive and hostile context in which lots of same-sex love and relationships have existed. So the stories from the past, other stories are part of us, you know, even before we hear them for the first time. The stories of people who look like us, who struggle like us, who love like us, they have the power to help us understand and imagine ourselves differently. And we hope that people listening to the podcast will hear something they can relate to, whether they're part of the LGBTQ community or not. We all relate to other people in different ways, and sometimes in ways that surprise us. And that's kind of the joy of history and the joy of the privilege of the jobs that we have at English Heritage. So if you're listening to this and you want to find out more, you can go to our website. There's loads of, of articles about all the people that you've heard about today. You can go on the self-guided tour at Ranger's House, but there's also events that are coming up. So we have a, a Queer Walls event at Eltham Palace on the 9th of June, which I think is just a, a few days after this podcast is going to go live. And you'll see a, a wonderful, fabulous cabaret evening hosted by a drag queen and a drag king, Adam All and Apple Derriers. So I think lots of the stories that we've talked about today are really sad, but I think one of the wonderful things about LGBTQ plus history is that it has brought us to where we are today, which is a place where we can celebrate people's lives and, and the openness in which the people who've come before us have allowed us to, to live as ourselves. Mm -hmm. 
you've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll uncover the fascinating history and transformation of Orford Castle in Suffolk. It is a lovely soft colour. There are these undulations within the render. And so whenever you see it, whatever time of day or the weather changes it, it's always different. It's a very lively finish. And I think it's very beautiful. Thanks for listening. See you next time.